Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. We don't know what she was thinking in her final moments. We can only guess, based on the evidence she left behind. It would have been quite a hike for her. There are trails that twist and meander all throughout the Hollywood Hills. Trails that were only once traveled by donkeys or natives in yucca-thatched moccasins. It was September 1932 when she made her own climb up those trails. That summer had been brutally hot. And even by fall, a climb up that trail would have been torturous under the late afternoon sun. She started on Beechwood Drive, headed towards the southern slope of Mount Lee, and trudged her way up the long winding path. Today there are fences all around and electronic sensors preventing people from getting too close to the sign, but not back then. Back then you could walk all the way up to the base of the sign and stay hidden in its long jagged shadow. The sign said Hollywood Land back then. Those last four letters wouldn't come down for over another decade. We don't know for certain what time she reached her destination, nor do we know when she started her last perilous climb up the rickety maintenance ladder behind the letter H. But if you'll allow me this one bit of speculation, I like to think it was just around sunset, when the sun drooped low behind the horizon and sky turned that brilliant shade of gold melting into crimson. In those fading moments just before the sun ceded control to the purple twilight, a perfect movie sunset, the kind of sky you'd want to see a cowboy riding off into just before the credits rolled, or two young lovers sharing a long final kiss silhouetted against the sun. Did she hesitate before putting her hands on the first rungs of the ladder and beginning to climb? We don't know but I imagine she did. In this town built on dreams, imagination is all we have to go by, and I can't imagine any moment where I'd hesitate more. And so she climbed, slowly, deliberately. The irony wouldn't be lost about how careful she was being for fear she might fall. She must have made it to the top. Why else would you come this far and make this public of a statement if you weren't going to go all the way. The view must have been spectacular. Even from ground level, the view was stunning. But from up top, peeking out from behind the massive capital letter with the evening lights of the city of dreams twinkling below, the view must have been positively breathtaking. We'll never know for certain what was going through her mind in those last moments. And maybe that's for the best. Something should remain private. Her name was Peg Entwistle, and there are many things we'll never know about the moments before she stepped off that ladder into space, plummeting into Hollywood history forever. I'm Nate Hale, and Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up, and this is The Conspirators. 
Peg Entwistle was born Millicent Lillian Entwistle in Port Talbot, Glenmorgan, Wales, to English parents. It's often reported but lacking any sort of documented evidence that her mother died when she was young. Her father, Robert Entwistle, was a stage actor, and although it's uncertain when precisely they emigrated to the United States, documents show they were in Cincinnati, Ohio, then New York City, in 1913. In December 1922, Peg's father was the victim of a hit-and-run accident that killed him. Peg and her two half-brothers were taken in by their uncle, who had come to New York with them and had become the manager of actor Walter Hampton. By 1925, Peg had begun acting on the stage herself. Walter Hampton gave her her first big break with an uncredited walk-on role in a production of Hamlet on Broadway. She later played the role of Hedvig in Henrik Ibsen's The Wild Duck. One of the members of the audience for that production was a young Betty Davis who was so completely wowed by Peg's performance that she vowed to her mother that she wanted to become an actress just like Peg. Years later, Betty Davis would get her own chance to play Hedvig on Broadway. In an interview, she would always cite Peg Entwistle as her primary inspiration. In 1926, Peg was recruited by the New York Theatre Guild, and it was through them she received her first credited Broadway role in June of that year. She played Martha in The Man from Toronto, which ran for 28 performances at the Selwyn Theatre. Peg remained with the New York Theatre Guild for the next six years, during which time she performed next to several noted actors, including Robert Cummings, George M. Cohan, and Dorothy Gish, among others. Her longest-running play was the 1927 hit Tommy, which ran for 232 performances and became the stage role she was most remembered for. In 1927, when she was 19 years old, Peg met and fell in love with actor Robert Keith. He was 10 years her senior, and for a short while, she was happy. But it didn't last. It wasn't long after the nuptials were sealed that Robert told her that he'd been keeping a secret from her. He hadn't told her that he'd been previously married, nor that he had a six-year-old son. It came as a total shock to Peg. She only found out the truth after she went to visit her mother-in-law's house and saw a picture of the young boy on the mantle. Just a few weeks later, during a dinner party she was hosting at their home, a police officer came to the door demanding $1,000 in back child support that Robert owed. If they didn't pay the money right then and there, the officer threatened to haul Robert off to jail. Peg scraped together the money, but when she tearfully tried asking Robert about it, he grew angry and violent. Just two years later, Peg filed for divorce on the grounds of cruelty and deception. She told the courts that Robert liked to drink, and when he got drunk, he grew mean and angry. Peg returned to working on Broadway, but even this part of her life seemed to be spiraling out of control. The Great Depression meant the public had less disposable income for things like Broadway tickets. As a result, her next seven plays bombed. This caused Peg to look west for her next big break. The siren call of Hollywood was strong. Tinseltown was in a transitional period as talking pictures came into vogue. Many of the old-time silent movie actors just weren't cut out for speaking roles. Peg saw this as an opportunity to get into the movies at the dawn of a new era. She hopped on a train that took her to the West Coast, 
There, Peg landed a role in a play called The Mad Hopes, starring opposite a young actor named Humphrey Bogart. But the play only lasted a week and a half, and when it closed, she took it as another personal failure. She managed to find work in a few other small stage productions, and eventually she landed a short-term film contract with RKO Studios. She then got a small role in a film called 13 Women, starring Myrna Loy and Irene Dunn. The film was a B-grade melodrama based on a book about a group of school friends who began getting their fortunes told by an evil fortune teller who begins to predict their deaths. And of course, those predictions begin to come true. One woman commits suicide. Another murders her husband and is sentenced to be executed. A third is killed by her husband. Peg got the role of the second woman to die. She hoped the role would lead to bigger and better things. But the producers decided to shelve the film before it was even released. And by the time it finally hit theaters, a large chunk of the film had been edited out. There were many problems with the film that Peg couldn't foresee. For one thing, it wasn't very good. For another, in the book the screenplay was based on, one of the characters was a lesbian. Something that would never fly in Hollywood back then. This was something that was already watered down and only implied in the film version. But even this implication was too much for the Hayes Commission, which controlled ratings and content for all of Hollywood. As a result, a lengthy chunk of the film was left on the cutting room floor, and this included most of Peg's performance. When the film finally did come out, critics savaged it. Ironically, Peg's brief performance was one of the few things about the film that received any praise. But Peg Entwistle never got to see any of those reviews. If this were a movie, Peg would have made her fateful decision the morning those reviews hit the papers. But it wasn't a movie, and Peg didn't wait. By the time the film came out, Peg was already dead. After 13 women wrapped, Peg found herself unable to find other film work. Even worse, she'd had to sever many close relationships she'd made back in New York, making it impossible for her to return to Broadway, even if she had the money for a return ticket, which she didn't. She felt adrift and alone, broke and friendless in this town she didn't know. She told her family she was going to meet some friends at a local drugstore. But instead, she began her long final walk up the trail to the Hollywood land sign. No one knows why that workman's ladder was even there. Normally, there wouldn't have been one. Nor do we know how Peg would have known the ladder would be there. She certainly couldn't have dragged it up the hill herself. Was it fate? The sort of contrivance even a hack screenwriter wouldn't have tried to write into the story. Some things we'll never know. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. The sign itself was built in 1923 as a publicity stunt to try to encourage people to buy homes in the new Hollywood Land subdivision located along Beechwood Canyon. Back then, Hollywood as we know it was still in its infancy. 
and they were still being deluged year after year with young men and women hoping to make it big in the film business. Promoter Max Sennett never expected the sign to be a permanent structure. Like so much else in Hollywood, it was just a facade. Something to dazzle the eye for a little while before the next big thing came around. Sennett originally expected the sign to only stay up for a year and a half tops. The original sign cost $21,000 to build. Each of the letters was 30 feet wide by 50 feet high. Originally, the entire sign was illuminated with 4,000 electric light bulbs that could be seen for miles around. Over time, the sign fell into disrepair. Vandals often broke the light bulbs or stole them as souvenirs. Maintenance of the sign was discontinued in 1939. In late 1944, the new developers of the Hollywoodland subdivision, the H. Sherman Company, quit claim to the city of Los Angeles 455 acres of land adjoining Griffith Park, including the property containing the sign. For another five years, the sign was pretty much left to the elements. During the early 1940s, the sign's official caretaker, Albert Koth, got drunk and drove his 1928 Ford Model A off a cliff directly behind the sign and destroyed the letter H. In 1949, the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce made plans to rebuild and refurbish the sign. This included their plan to remove the word land from the end of the sign. It cost them about $4,000 to renovate it. The decision was made for cost and practical reasons not to replace all the electric light bulbs. That was the last time the sign would be renovated until the 1970s. During that interim, the sign continued to deteriorate. By then, the first O had splintered and now resembled a lowercase u and the third O had fallen down entirely. In 1978, a public campaign to restore the sign was put together by none other than Playboy founder Hugh Hefner. Nine donors gave $27,777.77 apiece to restore each letter with a new steel and concrete reinforced version. But that's all a long way removed from the life and death of Peg Entwistle. On September 16, 1932, a woman was hiking below the Hollywoodland sign when she found a woman's shoe, a purse, and a jacket. Inside the purse, she found a suicide note that read, I am afraid I am a coward. I am sorry for everything. If I had done this a long time ago, it would have saved a lot of pain. After that, the woman looked around for a bit and soon saw a body at the base of the mountain further below. The woman then reported what she found to the Los Angeles Police Department and left the item she found on the steps of the Hollywood Police Station. A detective and two radio car officers retrieved the body from the ravine. Peg's body remained unidentified for two days until her uncle made the connection with reports of the dead woman and her suicide note, which had been published in the papers and was signed with the initials P.E., Peg's death brought with it the sort of enormous publicity some wannabe stars only dream about. Her funeral was held in a Hollywood mortuary on September 20th, and her body was cremated and her ashes were later sent to Glendale, Ohio, to be buried next to her father in Oak Hill Cemetery. In 2014, around 100 people gathered to mark the anniversary of Peg Entwistle's death. They met in the parking lot of Hollywood's Beachwood Market to watch 13 women on an outdoor screen. Proceeds from a raffle and sales of food and beverages were donated to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. 
Also in 2014, a musical based on Peg Entwistle's life titled Goodnight September debuted in the UK. It received mostly glowing reviews. F. Scott Fitzgerald once famously said there are no second acts in American lives. Yet you need only look at the strange sightings that occurred around the Hollywood sign in the decades that followed Peg Entwistle's suicide to wonder if this may not be true. Throughout the years, many hikers and park rangers have reported sightings of a woman dressed in 1930s-era clothing who abruptly vanishes when approached. Witnesses have described the woman as being pretty and blonde and appearing very sad. People have also reported the pungent smell of gardenias around the area. A gardenia scent was known to be Peg's favorite perfume. In 1990, a man and his girlfriend were walking their dog along the Beechwood Canyon Trail near the Hollywood sign when the dog began acting very strangely. Instead of running excitedly around the trail as he usually did, the dog suddenly reared back and began to whine near the couple's legs. The couple had never seen him act this way before, and they didn't know what was causing his behavior. Then they saw a woman approaching them from the distance. She was thin and blonde and dressed in vintage-looking 1930s-era clothing. She appeared to be walking in a daze, The couple stopped, assuming she was crazy, and they hoped she'd wander off in some other direction. But then the woman appeared to fade out in front of them, like dissipating mist. The couple had never heard of Peg Entwistle before, but when they told other people about what they had seen, they were then shown photographs of Peg, and they both enthusiastically agreed that she was the woman they had both seen on the path. A Griffith Park ranger named John Arbogast would also come forward claiming to have seen Peg Entwistle's spirit along the trails. After the reconstruction of the sign that occurred back in the early 80s, they added tall fencing and motion sensors throughout the area to prevent vandalism, and also to prevent suicidal people from repeating Peg Entwistle's jump. Arbogast claims that on more than one occasion the motion sensors have gone off for no good reason. There were times when he stood alone at the foot of the sign, and the motion sensor was claiming there was someone standing next to him just a few feet away. Now I can't say whether there's any truth to the sighting of Peg Entwistle's ghosts. It seems like people always find a way to insert a good old-fashioned ghost story into the aftermath of any tragedy. There's something about Hollywood that just seems to lend itself to stories veiled in darkness. When we think of Hollywood, we think of the glitz and glamour, but we know deep down that beauty is just special effects. Hollywood has always been a place of escape. It's a land of make-believe where people with stars in their eyes come to make their fortunes. It's a land that creates fantasies to try to take our minds away from our troubles for just a little while. But beneath the surface, there's a dark side. A place where dreams die hard, and despair comes to the unlucky ones. In real life, there are seldom ever any happy endings. No screenwriters to wrap things up in a nice neat bow. No director yelling cut when they wrap the final scene. But every so often, reality has a way of throwing in a good old-fashioned twist ending. And what seems like fate adding insult to injury? The day after Peg's body was discovered, her uncle received a letter that had been mailed to Peg the day before she jumped. It was from the Beverly Hills Playhouse, and they were offering Peg the lead role in their next production. It was a big break, a big chance, 
And if Peg Entwistle had waited to commit suicide for just another day, her fortune might have finally turned around. In what seems like the cruelest of coincidences, the role was that of a beautiful young woman who commits suicide in the final act. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Special thanks to all of you, my faithful listeners, who have helped this podcast grow and grow. I wanted to tell you about something very cool I'm going to be participating in. Starting May 15th through June 13th, Josh Hallmark of the Our Americana podcast is starting a project called Two Pods a Day, in which every day over a 30-day period, they'll be promoting two independent podcasts. I hope you'll follow along on Twitter, Facebook, and the newly created Two Pods a Day website. The podcasting community is full of many really talented people who work hard to entertain you, to teach you, to make you smile, to make you cry, to make you laugh. By following along, I hope you'll be introduced to some of the other fantastic shows that are out there. Thanks so much for continuing to support my own show. I have some really exciting surprises in store for you in the near future. In the meantime, I hope you'll continue to spread the love and ask the people you know to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. We're also always available on Stitcher, the Google Play Store, and our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Thanks again, and be sure to follow along with Two Pods a Day.